Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. To wrap up 2020, we thought we'd highlight a few of our favorite episodes. This week, we share my conversation with Bakari Sellers. You know Bakari from his political analysis on CNN. We knew him when he was a young legislator in South Carolina. His memoir, A Vanishing Country, is one of the best books I read this year. Enjoy this conversation with one of the most important voices on race and politics in America today. Bakari Sellers, welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm so happy to be on this platform and thankful that you're giving me the chance today. First of all, congratulations on a really amazing book, uh, My Vanishing Country. It's a memoir of your experience. It's a look at the issues around race and poverty uh, in our country. I want you to, if you don't mind, to start with the story uh, of your father and the Orangeburg Massacre. I was an American history major in college, and it shocked me that I had never uh, heard about this event. And this is really the story that that drives your interest in politics and your commitment to public service. Yeah. So the Orangeburg massacre, I mean, it's a, it's a great tragedy in American history, not just because uh, three young men were killed, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond and Delano Middleton, none of the, uh, over the age of 19, Um, not just because uh, 28 others were wounded, not just because my father was one of those shot and not just because all the officers who shot and killed unarmed students were tried and they were um, found not guilty. But it, it's even more of a tragedy now because of the fact that um, people don't know the story. Um, you know, it's their lives where their lives lost in vain. Um, you had students at South Carolina State, which began on February 6th of 1968, protesting uh, what the history books call the last vestige of discrimination in Little Orangeburg, South Carolina. It was a small whites only bowling alley. Um, they were beaten on the night of the sixth on the night of the eighth. They went back down and protested again. Um, only this time, uh, when the law enforcement came, they got the right idea and they went back to their campus and the students, they couldn't foresee what would happen that night. They couldn't foresee that, uh, state troopers would line up along the embankment in front of their beloved campus. They couldn't foresee that they would close ranks like they did. And for eight seconds, shots were fired into the group of students who killed three um, and wounded many more. And the history, history books just failed to acknowledge um, this tragedy. Um, I'm reminded that people know about Kent State and to a lesser extent, people know about Jackson State, but not many people know about Orangeburg. Yeah, it's, uh, it is it, the parallels to Kent State, yet, yet it's so much uh, less known. And hopefully your book... Um, changes that. But it had a profound impact, not only obviously on the lives of those who were killed that day um, and those uh, who had to witness it, but uh, also on your father, uh, which eventually then drove your interest in politics. Can you briefly talk about your father's uh, 
being falsely accused and then how that awakened a uh, an interest in politics with you uh, from that trauma? I mean, that trauma, I tell people, and as you know, um, I state that, that, that that is the most important day of my life. You know, it's not just my father being shot, but it's my father going to prison. And the years of anxiety that he had in between that and his trial, you know, they most people don't know this. Most people don't know the story, but most people don't know this. My father was actually charged with five felony counts, looking at a maximum of 75 years in prison. And when he went to trial, the indictment was backdated from February 8th to February 6th. And my father was charged, tried and convicted of rioting, becoming the first and only one man riot in the history of this country. And so it was that pain and anguish um, and um, injustice that touched my family, but it wasn't just, um, you know, that incident at me, you know, the, the trauma, you can extrapolate it out because my father was actually in prison while my mother gave birth to their oldest child or my big sister. And um, then when my father emerged from prison, you know, my father had a felony on his record. So he was a black man in the South with a felony. And so you had all of these interesting, very interesting dynamics that were all caused and stemmed from this injustice. And I even, you know, talk about much of the anxiety that's in my family, et cetera. And, you know, that, that moment, I can only imagine the pain for the families of those three who were killed, but that pain for those who were wounded and my father who was wounded and arrested it's still very real. And I, you know, throughout the book, as you know, and in, in me writing this, I, I refer to myself as a child of movement. And there are a lot of us who are experiencing and who go through many of the same, much of the same trauma. And it's just, it, it's something we have to live with. It's, it's a part of the pain of, of the black experience. And I, uh, I want to come back to your very honest, uh, depictions of your own anxiety and struggles. But one of the things that's striking about the book is how your father sought to expose you very early to the, to the pain and to the history of that moment. And, and it became part, you know, became part of who you are in a very real way. And, you know, I think many of us, I have an eight year old and a five year old. I know you have a, a three kids, uh, two two younger and one a little bit older and you know i think we're all struggling with how to talk to our kids and how to engage with our kids when there are so many traumatic events uh going on around us what what lesson did you take away from uh your father's uh very intentional efforts to to expose you to to the realities of life and especially uh black life in america I mean, I think, you know, one of the lines that I wrote in the book that stuck out to me the most when you go back and read it and, and you know, when you're writing a book and you get a chance to, to go back and read it, you're like, oh, that was a really, really, really good line there. You know, one of the things that stuck out to me was one of the lessons my father taught me in which he said that heroes walk among us. And the reason that stuck out and the reason that's so true is because my father didn't want us to just simply believe that it was Martin, Malcolm, and Rosa. Uh, my father wanted us to understand um, that each of us had the capacity to be change agents. Um, he wanted us to study Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. He wanted us to appreciate the contributions of Julian and Marion. 
in Stokely. Um, and he wanted us to have a great value and appreciation for the totality of the black experience, especially those individuals who were on the front line of change. And so, you know, I'm a product of the proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. And I'm very grateful that my village is just comprised of so many heroes. And do you have advice for, uh, for people and especially maybe people of color on, uh, who are maybe struggling with how much to talk to their kids in the wake of George Floyd and these other murders that are happening around our country, um, based on your father's uh, example? Well, you have to be truthful and honest. My father was always truthful and honest. He, al- he also set a level of expectation um, for all of us and an expectation that we could be anything we wanted to be in the world as long as we were change agents. Understanding that we had to become a part of something, of something larger than ourselves. All of these things are so important, especially today with the protest movement all around and people trying to find their place. I get this really cool sense of pride, also this innate sadness um, about my, my daughter. She's 15, and she protests. She's a Black Lives Matter protester. She goes out there. She makes her signs. She and her girlfriends, they call themselves the Black Queens, and they go out, and, you know, the, the pride that you feel is like in your chest is deep, but you also feel this real sadness that your daughter has to go out and reaffirm her Blackness and that her life's her life matters. Um, sometimes you wish she could just be like Baron Trump's or like Donald Trump's son, Baron, and you're just able to be 15 or be a teenager and not have to carry that burden. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that the answer to the question, because I, I re, I'm not someone who gives a lot of parenting advice because I'm still struggling with 17 month old twins and a 15 year old daughter. Um, but I, I would advise people um, to just live in their truth. And people, you know, these conversations that we're having now are, are very challenging and very difficult. And white folk tend to ask me often about the conversation that black folk got to have with their kids. You know, we have, uh, you know, we have to have questions about interactions with law enforcement and interactions with the Amy Coopers of the world that white folks simply don't have to have with their kids. And while that's an intriguing conversation to figure out what I'm teaching my kids, I'm more, I'm more intrigued about what are you teaching your children? How are you teaching them to give my, my, my son and daughters the benefit of their humanity? How are you showing by example? Are you elevating people of color around you in your workplace, in your friend circle? Are you empowering them? Are you including them in the decision-making process? Because our young people are watching. And so those are more interesting conversations and the introspection that's needed now. That's a great, I know you're not uh, in the business of giving advice, but that is, but those questions uh, in many ways, I think that's, that's a great advice and a good place to, to start. You talked about uh, your daughters protesting and the, both the pride and sadness uh, that you feel uh, reading this book. I was struck by there's this, interplay between real pride in your father's story and your story and but there's also a deep sadness about the state of uh race relations in this country and then also the economic uh deprivation of our rural areas i guess in writing this book did you sort of discover any truths that, that you sort of hadn't worked through before or, and what was this process like of writing 
and then then now talking about this book so i mean it was therapeutic or maybe cathartic you have to have somebody who really knows the intricacies of the difference thing <laughs> but it was it was it was it was a uh, it was fun i you know i've lived in a fishbowl since i was 21 years old when i first ran for office and so living in a fishbowl is not you know where you everyone knows absolutely everything absolutely everything that you do um, through being in elected office and sometimes that pressure and stress. And so I wanted to be honest and I honest for those people who are writing and met some people who are writing their stories. You can't, you can't tell your story in half truths. You have to be, you know, people want realness and authenticity. And that's what I attempted to do. And now talking about this book and the success of this book gives me hope. And I hope this book is extremely successful so that other people like me can tell their stories too. So talking about your story, you were elected to the state legislature uh, at age 22. You rose quickly in the state and made a run uh, for lieutenant governor that was ultimately unsuccessful. One of the things that strikes me is uh, you've, you've, you've been in the system, um, and as your daughter and others march, what do you think they need to know about the system, and then what do legislators white and black progressive and conservative need to know about the marchers. And cause it, it feels a little bit like people are talking past each other. Maybe it's an intentional, uh, effort to not, to not hear each other, you know? Um, but what, what, from your experience, what's, what, what, what are your observations? Well, I think the largest observation people have to make is that this isn't just about George Floyd. I think if you think it's about George Floyd or just police brutality, you miss the entire mark. Um, this isn't just about George. It's just not about Brianna, and we have to say her name and say her name loudly. This isn't just about Ahmaud Aubrey. This is about uh, 401 years of institutionalized and systemic racism and oppression, and people are, tr- are tired of these systems. It's been a boiling point. It's about you know whether or not you're a legislator or whether or not you're a state house member or whether or not you are um, you know in city government or or uh, you know, school board or whatever it may be. It's about talking about the food deserts that are in your particular district. Um, it's about talking about improving the quality of, of public school education. It's about um, the drinking water and the air that people breathe. It's about these systems of oppression that have been making this an uneven playing field for people of color, particularly black people, since 1619. And that, that is George Floyd and the inhumanity of that um, killing. I mean, when you watch a murder on tape for, uh, that long, you know, I, I tell people that it wasn't minute one, but it was minute two through eight that awoke in the consciousness of a nation. It's not hard for you to believe that interactions with law enforcement can go sideways. If you see one put their knee in a net for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So what I what I believe that people have to be able to do is take a step back and look at the entire worldview. And then you 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 said something that's profound, and I think that it's probably it's the problem that we're having in this discussion right now is that too many damn people are talking. Like <laughs> there comes a point where you need to shut up and listen. Right? This whole thing is like the the reason I wrote a book is so that people can understand the trauma of being black in this country. The reason we're going through this moment is because people need to 
like listen and you know for those elected officials or people who want to go into politics who may listen who may listen to this podcast you know there's a certain element of just being quiet right and attempting to learn read a book listen to other people's stories write your story so other people can learn from it but too many people are talking right now which is why the clutter is becoming unbearable that that was my next question which is you're not only uh, you not only were a participant in our political system but now you're a keen observer of it uh, in your role at CNN do you think the incentives and our the civic life of this country is set up for us to listen and start to work towards solutions. It seems like all the incentives and it's sort of embodied by our president are, uh, are aligned to go the other way, right? To push division and to push shouting from your perch at CNN over our political system. Are we, are we ready to, to grapple with these this uh, 400 years of oppression? So, I mean, you add that again, you, you're channeling your inner Chris Cuomo. That was a really good question. It was loaded, but good. So is society suited to have this discussion? I'm boiling down your question or at least answering the one I think. You, so I think we are, will we have this discussion in a way that is valuable and have the necessary depth. I'm not sure. And the main reason is because we become so addicted to, I think the, I think the word is the McDonaldization where you want people, where people want things quickly and they want it right now. Did I make that word up? Or if it, have you ever heard of that? If, if I just made it up, we're going we're gonna to roll with it. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. No, I've, but uh, I've also eaten enough McDonald's to know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, with social media and cable news and people retreating to their own silos where, you know, you have these silos where you only go out and search for people that reinforce your own views, right? That's the problem. So I think that, and you know, if somebody's watching Tucker or uh, I forget the morning show they have over there every single day, I had a unique experience because I was able to be a fellow at the University of Chicago and I challenged my fellows for one week, oh, Fox and Friends, one week, watch Fox and Friends. The next week, the entire week, watch Morning Joe. And then the third week, watch New Day. And while you're watching all three of these, at the end, come back, and you will have three distinct views, or maybe two and a half distinct views of what reality is. And so... You know, I just think that it's very difficult when you have these vacuums of truth. Um, you know, I, I'm a big proponent and fan of, of New Day and a big big fan and proponent of Morning Joe. I have no idea what they're doing on Fox and Friends. But but you understand that it's hard to have these conversations because people distort reality. People just fun can't tell the truth sometimes. So now I have to ask, you've been willing to uh, continue to engage in politics What's your future, and how do you how do you plan on having these conversations uh, in politics going forward? So I want to, you know, I, I do want to run for office again. Hopefully, I'll be running for the United States Congress in the near future. I don't know when that's going to be, um, but I can't wait to get back involved. You know, the lessons that I learned when you get out of politics. One of the lessons, one of the lessons that I learned is that uh, you're never as important as you thought you were. I am. Uh, I, I'm happy to be out and taking a deep breath, but I can't wait to get back in. 
I guess the remarkable thing is having read your book, there's a an ambivalence about the efficacy of our systems because you've seen them fail so often. They failed your father. They failed uh, Denmark, South Carolina. But I, I'm, I'm grateful that you're willing to 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 stick with it and and continue the fight. You know what what do you think drives you individually about trying to to stay in that system? That's a good question. I mean, my father gave up so much. My family gave so much to this journey for justice that I'm not going to quit now. Um, you know, I stand on the shoulders of people who pushed this country to and, and believed in what Lincoln said was the better angels of our nature. And so I'm not going to be the one to break that chain. Um, it's going it's tough though. It really is. But you know, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep fighting. I don't have a, I don't have any other option and I want to create a country where my kids can be free, not just for life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but for things like love and hope and truth and justice and peace. And that journey's not completed yet. Well, thank you for for staying on that journey. Thank you for continuing to fight. Thank you for writing a beautiful book in my vanishing country. Uh, anyone out there, I, I recommend that you read it. And thank you, Bakari Sellers, for joining us on An Honorable Profession. That means a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>